Hello and welcome everybody to a new episode on Hour of the Truth today on Thursday the 24th of September 2015. A day a lot of people probably would have marked already in their calendar because this is one of the most important days I think in the history of the United States of America. When you go back to 1776 and even when you go back to 1876 or 1870, whatever, I don't think that anybody would ever guess that the Antichrist himself, the Pope, the Pontifex Maximus, the son of perdition, the lawless ma- lawlessness man, would come over to the Protestant, so-called, I have to say, Protestant nation of the United States of America and go into the legislative capital and speak in front of all the legislatives in America, the Senate and the Congress, and of course to the American people. But that's what just happened today. Now, this is quite fresh in our minds, and I have to tell you honestly, even though that I watched his speech that he delivered in the Congress today, uh, I haven't gone through this whole transcript, of course. It needs to be a little bit worked on, and I don't think it is quite a good idea to try and break something that important just over the need just because it is today and analyze it today. But still, I think there will be some things that we will go and address this very important visit to the Pope today. And uh, surely next week, when we've had some time to digest it all, we can start making here and there an analysis. But it is nevertheless a very important day. And uh, whenever you have the chance of watching Pope Francis coming to the Congress and doing his speech, delivering his speech, The one thing that surprised me the most at first was that he all of a sudden started speaking English. On the other hand, you could see or you could tell by the way that he read this that he probably didn't even understand what he was saying. I mean, he probably had his Italian transcript right next to it. But normally, Pope Francis says he doesn't speak English, and then he delivers a speech of almost an hour to the legislative and all for the the whole world to listen to in English, and it was quite difficult to understand. So when uh, the speech was almost done, I found the transcript online and I read along and then I understood much more what he was talking about than when I was just listening. I was just a little surprised that he mentioned, that he dared to mention, I have to say, Abraham Lincoln. And he made mention of him uh, quite a few times in that speech. But this gives me a possibility to come over to the signs of the times, you know, this little series that I'm reading to you on the Catholic conquest of America, uh, more specific, of course, the USA, that also deals um, with Abraham Lincoln and Charles Chiniqui today. And it starts with a very interesting note by Samuel B. Morse, and you probably know him as the inventor of the Morse code. And the quote goes as follows. A conspiracy against the liberties of this republic is now in full action under the direction of the wily Prince Metternich of Austria, who, knowing the impossibility of obliterating this troublesome example of a great and free nation by force of arms, is attempting to accomplish his object through the agency of an army of Jesuits." I think that this quote really speaks to the current daily events that we've just witnessed today. An army of Jesuits, and don't forget, the Pope who spoke there at Congress today 
is a Jesuit of the fourth vow. Here comes another quote from Charles Chenequi, and you probably know him as the author of the book uh, 50 Years in the Church of Rome, and you should know that he was not only a Catholic priest who then later turned to Jesus Christ, but he was also a personal friend of Abraham Lincoln. And the first quote from him reads as follows. I come fearlessly today before the American people to say and prove that the President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by the priests and Jesuits of Rome. At the foundation of the American public, that was end of the quote, at the foundation of the American public, the American people were not unaware of the danger from the other side of the Atlantic. They took a defensive measure called the Monroe Doctrine. That's also something that we have to go into other broadcasts in, in, in the future uh, a little bit deeper, the Monroe Doctrine. I find that very fascinating stuff. Named after President Monroe and announced in 1823, the Monroe Doctrine was a declaration by the Americans to the Catholic Jesuit Ancien Régime to stay on their side of the Atlantic. If they did cross the Atlantic, this would result in war with the American public. However, the Monroe Doctrine was not sufficient to protect the United States of America. The first major assault came in the form of a classic divide-and-conquer strategy, the American Civil War. The goal of the war was to divide the United States into two separate hostile nations. When this was accomplished, one nation could be played off against the other, and the Catholic cause would triumph. A perfect example of divide-and-conquer, if you ask me. The Pope made his intentions clear as to which side he supported when he wrote a letter to Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederate States, addressing Davis as, quote, illustrious president, unquote. As a result of the Pope's endorsement, quote, 100,000 loyal Roman Catholics from the Northern Army switched sides and fought for the South, unquote. And we can read this in Avro Manhattan's book, The Vatican-Moscow Alliance, on page 271. Now another quote from Charles Chinicky from 50 Years in Rome, page 296-297, reads as follows. It is said, quote, When the hour cometh, so cometh the man, unquote, and Abraham Lincoln was the man who rose to power at this time to meet the challenge. Lincoln knew who he true who the true perpetrators, perpetrators of the conflict were. He said, quote, We owe it to popery that we now see our land reddened with the blood of the noblest sons. I pity the priests when the people realize that they are responsible for the bloodshed, bloodshed of this war. Unquote. Well, let's take Abraham Lincoln's word in mind and think about about 2015. He pities the priests when the people realize that they are responsible for the bloodshed of this war. The American people, the majority of the American population, never ever to this day realized who was responsible for the bloodshed after this war. Even though, this is quite interesting now with the Pope coming over, the formal diplomatic relations between the Vatican and the United States of America have just been back implemented in 1984 by the Holy Alliance that Ronald Reagan had with John Paul II. 
Yeah? And all the time in between, they did not have official, official, I say, diplomatic relations. They had unofficial diplomatic relations, and if you want to know about that, I advise you to go to the book reading that Tom Press does on the Global Vatican. The latest few parts that I'm uh, listening to right now, he is really going deep into the so-called personal advisors that um, uh, Roosevelt had and then Truman had. And these personal advisors were personal advisors of the president to the Vatican. So that was a kind of an unofficial ambassadorship they had. Because at that time, the Protestant uh, protest, let's call it that, the Protestant protest in the United States of America was still that hard that it was impossible to push for a real ambassadorship as we have since 1984. And I can really advise you to go to that book reading that Tom Press does on the Global Vatican to learn more about that. How with deceiving and lying and infiltrating the Roman Catholic Church always got her bidding. Okay, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about this Catholic conquest of America here. Part of the northern strategy for prosecuting, uh, for pros prosecuting the war was to blockade the southern ports to cut off trade and support from Europe. This had far-reaching consequences that stretched all the way to China and threatening the economies of powerful European nations. The European response was to invade Mexico. Quote, A convention between Great Britain, France and Spain for joint intervention in Mexico was signed in London on October 30, 1861, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, when you look up the article Mexico in volume 15, page 391. But why invade Mexico? Well, because a French regime was to be installed there, and then they were going to invade the United States from the south in support of the Confederate States. Britain was to join the campaign by invading from the north. Thus, the United States was doomed because the plan went into effect. The French took over Mexico, complete with an emperor borrowed from the Austrian royal family. There you got Metternich again. And Britain already controlled Canada to the north and had been invading the United States already on a semi-regular basis, e.g. the Anglo-American War of 1812 to 1815, etc. However, Northern course was rescued by Abraham Lincoln. He had two last cards to play, and he was a skilled player. The American Civil War was not about slavery, as you're always told. It was about states' rights, the rights of the individual states as opposed to the federal government. Lincoln turned the war into the struggle against slavery by playing the first of his, two, of his last two cards. He issued the Proclamation of Emancipation. He abolished slavery in 1863. What did he achieve by abolishing slavery? Surely such a proclamation would only rile up the southerners even more and make them more determined to fight. Lincoln had to weigh up the negative impact of the proclamation of the south with the impact of the proclamation would have in Europe. He abolished slavery because the positive impact in Europe, for northern cause, far outweighed the negative impact in the south. The abolition of slavery stopped the interfering European powers in their tracks because slavery 
had just been abolished throughout the British Empire, and France had followed suit and public opinion was hugely against slavery. Quote, the conversion of the struggle, meaning the Civil War, into a crusade against slavery made intervention impossible, unquote, as we can read in Encyclopedia Britannica again. Another peril was the construction of special ships in Britain called Lairdrams, high-tech for that time, to break the blockade of the southern ports. To counter this threat, Lincoln played his second-last card, and I might add here the best card, and which is never taught to you in mainstream history lessons. He wrote a letter to the Tsar of Russia. When the American ambassador presented the letter to the Tsar, without even opening the letter, the Tsar said, quote, whatever is in this letter, we grant, unquote. The letter contained a plea for help. Lincoln desperately needed an ally in his struggle with Britain and France. The Tsar sent half of his navy to the west coast of America and the other half to the east coast. In other words, war with America would also be war against Russia. This was Lincoln's last card and it was sufficient. The other side of the Atlantic had no more cards to play. Britain and France had both just fought a war against Russia, the Crimean War between 1853 and 1856, and Russia had beaten them. Neither Britain nor France was eager for a rematch. And I'm going to add a little bit here another history. Britain and France had always tried to fight against Russia. Remember the Napoleonic Wars. Every country up to now that went against Russia lost I think except for the Japanese, if I remember right. But Germany lost, the few times they went against it. Britain lost, France lost, and here again. And at that moment, they were not eager for a rematch. Of course, Lincoln had to be punished for his victory, and he was assassinated by the Jesuits in 1865. The trigger was pulled by John Wilkes Booth, but he was not acting alone. As it is in all the assassinations, and you have the same resemblance, of course, with JFK, right? The rest of the plotters were arrested. They were all hanged. They were all Catholics. One plotter, John Surratt, escaped to Canada, where he was protected by the Catholic Church because he was hidden in a monastery. He eventually escaped to the Vatican, and he became a soldier in the Pope's army. He there's actually a photo existing on the internet that you can find that shows John Surratt in the, uh, in the clothes of the Swede army or the Swiss army that protects the Pope. He was a member of that Swiss guard. He was eventually brought back to America. He was, he was arrested and tried in court, but he was acquitted. And why was he acquitted? <clears throat> because the Jesuits made sure that the court consisted of Catholic judges. So there was no justice done. Nevertheless, the Union was preserved, and the American Republic survived. But America would not survive the next assault. Here comes a little extra note I'm going to read to you also to end this up. The Catholic involvement, <clears throat> excuse me, 
the Catholic involvement in Lincoln's assassination was concealed from the general public because it was feared that retaliatory, that retaliatory mobs would attack and kill innocent Catholic people. Charles Chinnicky is an authoritative voice from this period. He was a Catholic priest who got offside with the Jesuits, and Jesuits framed him with serious charges. Chinnicky needed the best lawyer in Illinois to defend him, so he hired Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln proved that the Jesuits had framed his client, and Chinnicky was declared innocent. Well, he doesn't go very deep into this in this article here, but it was, uh, I think, a very interesting intervening that all of a sudden a female um, witness turned up that acquitted Chinnicky. Thus, the Jesuit hatred for Lincoln began, lo began long before he became president. Lincoln and Chinnicky became, became great friends, and Chinnicky would often visit Lincoln in the White House. On one visit, Lincoln greeted Chinnicky with these words, quote, I'm so glad to see you again. You see that your friends, the Jesuits, have not yet killed me, but they would have surely done, uh, they would have surely done it when I passed through their most devoted city, Baltimore, had I not defeated their plans by passing incognito a few hours before they expected me. So many plots have already been made against my life that it is a real miracle that they have all failed when we consider that the great majority of them were in the hands of skillful Roman Catholic murderers, evidently trained by Jesuits. New projects of assassinations are detected almost every day, accompanied with such savage circumstances that they bring to my memory the massacre of the St. Bartholomew and the gunpowder plot. We feel at their investigation that they come from the same masters in the art of murder, the Jesuits. And this is from 50 years in the Church of Rome. After the Civil War, very interesting to know, America bought Alaska from Russia. At the time, the purchase was called Seward's Folly because it was thought that Seward, America's negotiator, paid more than it was worth. The inflated price for the purchase was a backhanded way of showing gratitude to Russia for its crucial assistance during the war. America paid $7.2 million for Alaska, which when you divide it per acre comes down to two cents per acre. And I think this was quite some little interesting history to start with. But I now turn it over to my good friend in the United States and Oregon over there who will tell us firsthand what he thinks about what I just read and, of course, of the Pope's visit that took place today. So, Walt, welcome to the broadcast and share some thoughts with us. Well, thanks. Thanks, York. It's a sunny, sunny skies here on the Oregon coast today. And, and the little bit of history that you revealed in the first 15 minutes is... Um, is truly history that people has been taken out of the minds of the minds of the swept out of history so therefore it's swept out of our minds yes we've never russia that history the fact that they were protecting the east and the west coast and and the purchase of of, of history i learned this in a lecture by stuart crane years ago 
exactly the way York read it. I don't know where he got his material, but it was excellent. And one thing I want to comment too on the York's on the on the Pope's speech, uh, York made a comment that he didn't think he was talking that good of English because he I've heard him try to talk English before and it was not as good as a German living in Belgium because York speaks better English than myself and he's bilingual in four languages. So I think uh, York, as far as that concerned, could have delivered the speech a little bit better than the Pope. And that's <laughs> and, and some and 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 there's another. I've been pretty blessed today. I had a call from a brother, a listener of the Hour of the Truth, and all he said was, he said, Tom York, Walt, just keep on doing what you're doing. He said, I've listened, I share your your message on my Facebook, plus he's got a home church, and uh, it gave me a really a boost in the arm this morning, because you see, Walt gets a little fatigued sometimes. You know, because Walt keeps pounding on those carols. Not to pound the carols. The carols deserve to be in history. They are very important founding fathers. And you can say that John Carroll, the Jesuit of 26 years, was a true founding father, Catholic founding father. But I think something's real important important here too. I had a I had a brother that sent me this. He sent me this quote. He's already listened to the speech. During the Pope's speech to a joint session of Congress was interrupted forty times by applause, including eleven times when the lawmakers stood to clap and cheer. They were cheering a Roman general, a Pontifus Maximus. That's what Julius Caesar was, was a Pontifus Maximus. And also, in his speech, he also said, he also, U.S. Representative Valquez, I can't pronounce it good, Democrat in New York, let out a whoop of support when the Pope called for an end to the death penalty. Can you imagine? Can you stop and think of the arrogance and the mindset? Utter a word about the death penalty to the biggest mass killers in history. Think of the arrogance. That is the mindset. We have a Roman Catholic Congress and Senate. This visit is the conquest of America. When Pope John Paul came over, 
he broke the ice. Ratzinger comes over, and they celebrate in 2008 on the lawns of the White House the victory of the American Revolution with the Knights of Columbus and the Fife and Drum Corps of the United States parading in front of Ratzinger. They were celebrating the victory of the American Revolution. And they like to rub things salt into the wound. They went to Yankee Stadium and they had filled up Yankee Stadium and they had one of the biggest cookie eats of all times right on the soil of America eating the Jesus cookie. You say, well, what does that signify? They were celebrating 1776 because prior to 1776, they couldn't say mass in public. That's what they were celebrating. And in the book, The Vatican Jesuit Global Conspiracy, on page 73, there's a little clip in here that I got from Chris Pinto. I remember when I heard about this on a broadcast, I almost fell out of my chair when Chris Pinto revealed this. And this is what he revealed. Images of Pope Innocent III and Gregory IX found in the U.S. House of Representatives. Inside the House of Representatives are the busts of two Roman Catholic popes. And not just any two popes, but the two men responsible for the founding the Great Inquisition. A movement unlike any other horror recorded in the history of mankind. Worse than the Holocaust of World War II, for it gripped all of Europe with a terror for nearly 600 years. Yet, in 1949-50, a series of relief portraits over the gallery doors of the House chamber were added to the interior of the U.S. Capitol that were intended to depict, quote, historical figures noted for their work in establishing the principles of the underlie American law, end of quote. Men like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington are to be found on, on the list, which makes sense to most students of history. And with them are the host of others, at least some of, them, of whom seem acceptable. But in the midst of this collection, we find Pope Innocent III and with him, Pope Gregory the Ninth, two of history's most wicked figures, arguing that these men truly influence a government that is dedicated to the cause of human freedom requires a twisted imagination. Yet here is what is said of these men on our official government website. Now, I'm not going to read any more. Well, it's, it, it's right up on the you can read this the entirety, but it's appropriate. When he walked into that chamber, he might be the first pope on the hoof that walked in there, but they put those two busts of the pope in 1949-50. It's just another 
And when I was talking to this brother this morning, here's a man that when he was 37 years old, I asked him the question, the $64,000 question. When did you realize that the papacy was the Antichrist? And he said, in 1930, when he was 37 years old. And I said, when did you learn about the carols? On Hour of the Truth. He said, it wasn't until I learned about the carols that all the pieces fit. You see, the way they portray the American Revolution, it portrays that the founders were Christian. And I covered this extensively for an hour. I even upset York that I took too much time on it. But I was driving home a point, a point that if we knew this, we wouldn't have this visit with the Pope. Of driving home the point, I just read out of Chris Pinto's. He 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 wrote this. This is he he wrote this piece I just read. <clears throat> the, but but the, but Chris Pinto, in his title of his documentary. The Hidden Faith of the Founding Fathers. Got to insert this. Yesterday morning, I had a listener call me up. They listen. Now, this listener listens. But when I brought up the fact, the hidden faith of the Founding Fathers, I said, I said, Did you, have you watched this? Absolutely, absolutely not. The Constitution, she said, the Constitution is a Christian document. And believe me, brothers and sisters, the whole United States want to you to believe. And I laid this out real plain last week. I stuck on it for 45 minutes before I blared it out. You can listen in its entirety in the broadcast we did on last Sunday. She didn't even watch it, okay, because it's a Christian document. The Constitution of the United States is not a, pro- a Christian document. It has the Protestant principles in the Bill of Rights. But the Constitution was coined who helped coin it was Bellarmine, an acquaintance. I might not pronounce that right. Acquaintance. Yeah, Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas. Now, you say, well, where did you get that, Walt? Well, I got it out of the Rooters of Evil. You say, well, Walt, you're, you, do you believe everything that's in Rooters of Evil? No. But I'm more apt to believe it when a Knight of Malta a graduate of Georgetown University, a former ambassador from America to the Vatican, says it in his book, The Global Vatican. 
the Constitution, they wanted one thing. They wanted freedom of religion. That's all they wanted. I can add something else to that with the Constitution. You know, the Constitution was only made up to give the United States of America that was formed as a nation 13 years later in 1789 a universal or a Roman Catholic government. It opened the doors wide open for the Catholics to come in where they were prohibited before the time of 1776. And when you read Rulers of Evil that you just relied on, Walt, you will really understand with what conniving actions the Roman Catholics and the Jesuits framed that constitution by in the first place seemingly giving the people so-called freedom. But we all here on this call are Bible-believing Christians. And we know that in the kingdom of God there is no freedom of religion. The first of the Ten Commandments already states that. I am the Lord your God who, who took you out of Egypt and there are no other gods before me. Before me. The word before in the Bible can also be understood as against me. And you have to understand that. In the kingdom of Christ, in the kingdom of our God, there is no religious freedom. There is only the freedom to worship the one and real existing God, and all the other gods are counterfeits. And the Constitution of the United States of America opened the door with the freedom of religion clause in it that the Catholics all of a sudden must have been accepted as, quote-unquote, just another denomination. And what the, most, <clears throat> what the majority of the people do not understand, probably the ones here on that call, what the majority of the people do not understand, is that the spiritual world and the secular world are combined in the Roman Catholic Church. And when they play this theater now, with the Pope coming to America, all the people see is just the spiritual side and not the political side the Roman Catholic Church represents. They have, in the meantime, between 1776 and now 2015, absolutely successfully installed a shadow government of how many dioceses you have over there, world? 198, something like that? With all the dioceses, with all the bishops and all 195. Their 195. Okay, I was close. <laughs> they have installed this shadow government. And that has the same structure as the United States government has. The same structure. So the United States government was actually formed after the same hierarchy than the Roman Catholic Church did. Now, where have you heard that before in history? Didn't Hitler say that he admires most the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church and that he implemented everything that he saw in the Roman Catholic Church into his 
National Socialist Working Party at that time into his government, the same, made it completely Catholic without telling the people that that actually was the case. That's why it's called a shadow government. And all your politicians on all levels, municipal, county, country, state, and federal, are obedient to that shadow government that is everywhere present in the United States of America through the churches, cathedrals, and all the other ecclesiastical hierarchy they have built there. And that is what the people are not told. And this is why they are clapping, giving standing ovation to the Antichrist without any idea anymore who he is. The Americans, but also the rest of the world, through the ecumenical movement, have forgotten who the Antichrist is. In that case, you can rightfully say today, Luther's protest is over. It's over because it has been infiltrated and turned around and nobody remembers anymore who the Antichrist is. If the American people today knew who the Antichrist was, they would have shot down that plane instead of leaving it landing on Dallas Airport in Washington. But back to you, Walt. When, remember, it landed at Dulles Airport, named after a Jesuit. Well, York, thanks for for just magnifying what I, I want to say. It's because, remember, the hidden face of the Founding Fathers, the title of the documentary by Chris Pinto is a great documentary, and I, you know, advise everybody to listen to it. Some, the, the people that, it's a religion that believe that the founders were Christian. That's a religion. But you see, that title leaves it open. The hidden faith of the founding fathers. Well, in the documentary, he comes out that it's the occult. And it is. It is. The biggest, biggest cult in the world is the Roman Catholic Church. But the question I brought, and I pounded for an hour last week, but what was the hidden faith of the founding fathers? It was Roman Catholic. And in Tupper Saucy's book, Tupper Saucy says something like this. When he's ending up the chapter, Subliberal Rome, chapter one of Rulers of Evil, by the way, and York is reading that, he's, he's, he's got 17 chapters. And it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a read that actually should be read before you listen to Global Vatican. You listen to those two books and you got a master's degree in history, history that has been left out. History that just has been left out of the books, not rewritten. They do that too. But the main thing they do is they leave out vital history. 
And when you leave the carols out of history, you can never see the Catholic connection. That's the reason why they have to fly under the radar. If people understood the carols, they could put two and two together themselves and realize that they've been conquered by the Roman Catholic Church. And that's why it's kind of a sad day for America. But as Christians, brothers and sisters, we know everybody on this call that's lasted this long hasn't disconnected. They know. They have a blessing. We have been blessed to know. Because I'm going to go one further. This love of George Washington. Remember, he's in the rotunda. In the apocalypse. He's deified. Apotheotis, Walt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yes, yes. He's deified. And, and Ignatius loves... Searching virgins. <laughs> in other words... Surrounding him. Yes, yes. And, and, he, and there's a statue at the bottom with him leaning up against a, a, fa, a fascist. How do, how do you say that? Fasci. Fasci. A, a, a fasci. Looking up. Now, that's a Roman fasci. And he's put up in the dome and he's deified. And on the top of that dome that he's deified is the Virgin Mary. Freedom that's on top of the Capitol building is the Virgin Mary. Oh, Semiramis. It's chapter, when you read Tupper Saucy's chapter 22, make sure you're sitting down. They took, they put her up there with three lifts. And on December 2nd, 1863, they give a 47-gun salute. That 47-gun salute was for John Carroll, who had passed away 47 years earlier. So when it gets back to George Washington... And George Washington was a, a member of the Society of Cincinnati. He was a president, the first president. Society of Cincinnati is named after Cincinnatus, a Roman general. Also, right in Global Vatican, Francis Rooney makes it very clear. He quotes he quotes Washington on Guy Fawkes Day. The first thing that old George did is he outlawed Pope's Day, Guy Fawkes Day, the day that the Jesuits in 1605 tried to blow up the British Parliament. And from 1605, after they found the Jesuits, and executed him, they made a holiday of it. Even today, the Englishmen don't know what they're doing, no more than the, than the Americans, because they have been, they've had their history taken away. They, they have bonfires on November 5th. 
But George Washington outlawed it and said it was foolishness and childish. Now, I'm going to tell you, if we'd have been celebrating Pope's Day ever since 1776, this Pope would not have got off the plane, okay? What this signifies, and this is a time to get off my chest, you see, because I'm just a retired truck driver. I've flown airplanes. I've been a beekeeper. I, you know, I've done, you know, what, what, you know, I, I'm not a scholar. I don't have a college education. I haven't been to a seminary or a Bible college. You know, so, so what, what, when we understand this history, all I've got to do is tell you, I'm telling you the dots. You can connect the dots, the Society of Cincinnati, abolishing Pope's Day, the Rotunda, and the Virgin Mary on top of the Capitol building. George Washington was a Roman Catholic. You say, where do you get that? Well, it's Chris Pinto in Chris Pinto's documentary. Well, in Catholic circles. There are some Catholic circles that they, they, they claimed that he was converted to Catholicism on his deathbed. Again, I said this, and this man who called me this morning, and I repeat myself, I repeat myself, the American Revolution was counter-reformation. That's a good point, Walt. So why don't we go over to the reading of the American of the Revolutionary War? How America became a Jesuit enclave? How did America? How did America get there? How did America get there? Is is what the chapter is about? Exactly. That's a good moment to start the reading, don't you think? Sure, it is. I think so too. In the Vatican and Walt, as always. When you have a comment to make, just say comment and interrupt my reading, okay? And then we will enjoy it even more with a little comment here and there from you. I, and I from think me. you should start at the beginning of it, too, though. I do, I do, I do. I start at the beginning on page 92 of the PDF. Okay. A most colossal conspiracy against the United States. I do not like the resurrection of the Jesuits. Is a quote from former U.S. President John Adams in 1816 just two years after the um, Jesuits because otherwise this broadcast would take 10 hours. We now come to another highly interesting portion of American history which you would be hard pressed to find in the history books. The part played by the Jesuits in the American Revolutionary War the War of Independence between 1776 and 1783. We have seen the role of the Jesuits in the American Civil War. But what part, if any, did they play in the earlier war that transformed America from a collection of independent states to a United States of America? 
The uninformed or partisan historians will tell us that this war was mainly, if not entirely, due to the arbitrary and intolerable acts of the British government, leading to the American colonists' desire to break with British rule. I will now venture to shed some light on this dimly reported aspect of American history and offer you a very different and, we hope, more correct view of history. That religion played a major role in the American Revolution is beyond any dispute. In 1776, at the time of the Declaration of Independence, there were little over 23 priests in all, <clears throat> and the high, next highest authority was the Vicar Apostolic in London, who had jurisdiction over the British colonies and satellites in America. The American Revolutionary War of Independence soon changed that. The reason there were so few Catholics and so many more Protestants was because of the foundation of the great democracy that is today called the United States of America was laid when millions of European Protestants fled the oppression of the Catholic Church in Europe to seek freedom of conscience and religion in the mostly uninhabited wilderness of North America. In the main, the settlers were resolved not to duplicate in the New World what they had fled from on the old continent. These settlers felt that the Pope, as a foreign ruler, should not be allowed to meddle in the politics or laws of America, as they suspected, that would render it difficult for immigrants, especially Catholics, to be fully loyal to the new country and to its fledging Republican values. Naturally, there was a fear of Roman Catholics, not unlike the fear many Americans have today of Muslim fundamentalists. After all, these early Protestant pilgrims had recently escaped the hands of the Catholic compatriots. In those days, people took their Catholicism seriously, so much so that several states passed laws regulating the activities of Roman Catholics. For example, in 1647, a Massachusetts statute declared that every priest was an, quote, incendiary and disturber of the public peace and safety and an enemy of true Christian religion, unquote. Now, when you go today outside on the streets on the United States of America and declare that, I guess they will put you just in the white jackets and put you in the nearest FEMA camp if they have already opened. Comment. But that is the mindset, that is the mindset the protestants had at that time because they knew the history. They just escaped there. And they had the chance to found a new nation, to found a new country in an inhabited, new, developed continent, America, North America, where they could flee the oppression of the Roman Catholic Church that had ruled between 538 A.D. and the time the people went over there for 1,200 years. Yeah, please, Walt. Well, it is... What's in seven, what 1776 changed is the in 1776 they weren't no longer they were no longer they were not no longer superstitions and idolatrous or religion which the Royal Declaration declares them with the stroke of a pen on July 4th 1776 they became Christians. And we see what it's what it how that we see the fruit of it in 2015. Absolutely. 
Okay, continue. Second but last paragraph on page 93. The early American settlers suspected that the Pope was seeking to meddle in the affairs of the United States to undermine its Republican values, which they said was evidenced by the oath that every Catholic bishop was required to take. Quote, I will to the utmost of my power see out and oppose schismatics, heretics, and the enemies of our sovereign lord, the Pope, and his successors. Unquote. However, the period following the restoration of the Jesuits in 1814 saw a tremendous growth in their numbers and influence in America, as evidenced by the large number of Jesuit colleges and universities established on that continent in that century, 22 of the society's 28 universities. And just a little add here, it all started in 1789 with the founding of Georgetown University, founded by John Carroll. In those days, says historian Renner Fulop Miller, one of Benjamin Franklin's friends was a Jesuit. This was John Carroll, who had been brought up in Maryland of Irish parentage. He would later become the Archbishop of Baltimore and go on to establish the Jesuit University of Georgetown in a suburb of the city of Washington, the federal capital, the first Catholic educational institution in the United States. According to Robert Emmett Curran, uh, in his The Bicentennial History of Georgetown University, the Society of Jesus, quote, resolved in 1786 to found Georgetown to supply for Catholics in the new republic the clergy whom the society had provided previously, unquote. John Carroll was born in 1735 at Upper Marlboro, Maryland. After receiving a Jesuit education at Bohemia in Cecil County, Maryland, Carroll studied abroad at Jesuit colleges in Europe. He was forced to flee Europe when the Jesuits were expelled from Sweden under the decree of Pope Clement in 1773. And on August 15, 1790, Reverend John Carroll was appointed the first Catholic bishop in the United States of America, being consecrated on the Feast of the Assumption. At the time, the papacy not only had to deal with the concerns of Americans that these re revolutionary Jesuit outcasts were migrating to America, it also had to quell the fears of the American people that the Catholic Church in America was itself no more than a Trojan horse for the installation of a foreign ruler, the Pope. To overcome these suspicions, the Jesuit John Carroll advised the Pope to have the portion of the oath which required allegiance to the Pope above all others removed from the American bishop's pledge. This was done to avoid giving offense to the principles of the Constitution and to calm fears that the Catholic bishops were merely puppets of the Pope on American soil. And again, I have to go back here to the reading that Tom Fress so wonderfully does on the Global Vatican, where he absolutely goes deep into this part this, this conversation that John Carroll actually had with the Pope by saying, Pope, you cannot be the head of the Catholic Church of America because if you do, they will trample us. We will not flourish in that country when we have to address you as our head. We have to separate the American Catholic Church from the Roman Catholic Church, at least in disguise, to give us time to develop. 
and the Pope agreed. So was history in that way turned over that the American Catholic Church was not assumed to be like the Roman Catholic Church. That was to silence Protestant voices. And that is the way how the American Catholic Church only became a quote-unquote another denomination. And you could have been neighbors with your Catholic friends, and you could have been work colleagues with your Catholic friends, and you could have been barbecue friends with your Catholic friends, and you could have been work colleagues and whatever you want to be, and friends and whatever. Hey, we're just another denomination. We don't accept the Pope as our, authority, as our head of authority. And that's how they put the Protestants in the United States of America to sleep. And the latest in 2015, they should wake up again. And you got some comments here? In today's speech in a joint session of Congress, shows you that the Trojan horse has succeeded. Absolutely. The door went open and the army came out. That's and right. And all the watchmen in the city are asleep. And, and now, when Rome, I don't know the saying, you know, Rome, when they're in the minority, they're gentle as a lamb. But, when, you know, when they get the majority rule, as they do now, that they house... They roar as a lion. They roar as a lion. And the applause, the applause that he got, I knew it was going to happen. Okay, sure, sure. You know, that roar of a lion, you could also translate biblically when you go into Revelation 13 and say, now the second beast speaks as a dragon. And, and, and now they can take, they, the mask is coming off, you see, because over, they're not only just another denomination with postmodern thinking, the postmoderns, the liberals in this country have been made Catholic by, and I, I want to use a word, but I don't have it. it the the, the postmoderns have made, been made Catholic uh, and they don't even know it. They think like like the global warming and the environmentalist. They're going to jump on this boy like fly on poo poo. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to continue reading in uh, the next part of this book called The Intolerable Acts. Bottom of page 94 if you follow the reading. In order to achieve the objectives of the Roman pontiff, the Jesuits, aided by their illuminated Masonic vessels in America, of, uh, in American War of Independence, <clears throat> sorry, I butchered that sentence. In order to achieve the object objectives of the Roman Pontiff, the Jesuits, aided by their illuminated, illuminated Masonic vessels in America, instigated the American War of Independence. Leading Masonic authors openly claim that Freemasonry had a preponderant role in the movement for independence. The Masonic Review of 1893 goes as far as to state that Freemasonry was the driving force in the formation of the American Union in 1776, 
claiming that at least 52 out of the 56 of the signers of the Declaration of Independence as members of the large Charles Carroll, John, Car John Carroll's cousin, was one of the signers. By encouraging Britain to effect into legislation a series of unreasonable and intolerable acts, the name given by American patriots to five laws adopted by the British Parliament in 1774, the secret operatives helped create a state of deep resentment and rebellion in the hearts of the American colonists. One such intolerable act was a new government tax scheme on imports of tea. And you can read what that's all about in Rulers of Evil. I think it was uh, three pence a pound. And they even imported the most of that tea from the Netherlands, from Holland, not even from England. It was a scheme. This is what happened behind the scenes. Two Scottish Rite Freemasons, Paul Revere and another Masonic brother, Joseph Warren, one of George Washington's generals, were members of the oldest lodge in America, St. Andrew in Boston. George Washington himself was initiated into the Fredericksburg Lodge in 1752. This Boston Lodge was based <clears throat> in the Green Dragon Tavern, remembered by some as the headquarters of the American Revolution. The Boston Tea Party operated from the lodge. The Boston Tea Party opposed the new tax on tea imports and employed various means of civil and criminal disobedience, including the blocking of non-British ships, ships to port. Next, the British Parliament passed... Yeah. I just I want to make a quote from the chapter 15, The Magic of Obelisk, by Peter Tompkins, another insider. He wrote the... Uh, he wrote the book, The Magic of the Obelisk. You know, and understand that the Freemasons were the Marines. They were the first ones to hit the beach in 1733. And this is what Peter Tompkins says. He says, whether or not the idea for a union of the colonies originated among colonial Freemasons, it was certainly achieved through their leadership. And who was their leader? The General Washington? Boston Masons organized the Tea Party at the Green Dragon Tav Tavern, described by Daniel Webster as the headquarters of the revolution and by the British as a nest of sedition. Paul Revere was a master Mason, as was every, no, as every general officer in the Revolutionary Army, started with Joseph Warren, Grand Master of Massachusetts Grand Lodge, the first to die at Bunker Hill, 2,000 more Masons were among officers of all grades, including Catholics and a score of the Jew Jewish faith, such as Colonel Isaac Frank, aide-de-camp to George Washington and Major Benjamin Dones on General Lafayette's staff. So whether or not the idea of the union of the colonies originated among the colonial Freemasons, it was certainly achieved through their leadership. That's a historical fact. My comment. Okay, thank you, Walt. Next, the British Parliament passed the Stamps Act, considered by the American colonists as another intolerable act. And again, I have to go back here to Rulers of Evil because this is what I read in, I think, the chapters 16 and 17, the latest uploads on the book read of Rulers of Evil. So when you go, want to go more deep into that, 
just uh, watch the videos of my reading of Rules of Evil or read it for yourself. And by the way, um, the download link has changed, but when you go to my playlist, Rules of Evil, there's the new download link for the, uh, for the book, Rules of Evil, and also in the latest video, the, um, the uh, download link um, is adjusted, and you can have the right one again. But by far the worst and most notable of these intolerable acts was the Quebec Act, passed on May 20th, 1774. It received the royal accent on June 22nd, 1774, which attempted to cede all of the territory west of the Appalachian Mountains and north of the Ohio River to Canada, which at the time was essentially Catholic Quebec. In particular, the legislation purported uh, to extend the Catholic province of Quebec south and west to the Ohio and Mississippi rivers and into western colonies of Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Virginia, <coughs> Virginia-taken land that many Protestant colonists had already claimed. That this was a deliberately provocative, provocative act, the legislative extension of the province of Quebec into so large an era of what was to become the United States, is seen from the fact that Quebec, Canada's largest province, is three times the size of France and seven times the size of Great Britain. Thus, the Catholics of Quebec had more than ample land to expand within Quebec, plus the vast expense that is Canada. Further, and curiously, the Quebec Act of 1774 established Catholicism as the official religion in what was at the same time the quote-unquote British colony of Canada. And, in conformity with the practice in Catholic countries of that day, it provided for trials without a jury, denied representative assembly. Doesn't that remind you of what's going on in the United States of America today? Have you ever read or ever heard of the National Defense and Authorization Act? the taking away of the, uh, of the Bill of Rights of the United States of America, the only real protestant part in the founding of the United States within the Constitution of the United States of America. This is canon law, people. Catholic canon law. And we can see that already here in Quebec in 1774. There's nothing new under the sun. It's always given other names, but it still stays the shame BS. The simultaneous passage of the Quebec Act and the coercive acts by the British Parliament led the colonists to angrily declare that the Quebec Act an immoral pact between Britain and Popery. What is surprising about this is that the British, who were supposed to be Protestants, included the provision in the Act expressly providing for Canada to remain under the exclusive control of the Roman Catholic religion, and this provision was to apply to the newly ceded territory, i.e. all the territory west of the Appalachian Mountains and north of the Ohio River. The terms included the stipulation that, quote, the exercise of the Catholic, Apostolic, and Roman religion shall be maintained, unquote. This was most curious coming from a supposedly Protestant power. How they infiltrated already at those times. 
and we have nothing learned throughout history by that. The British-American colonists, many Protestants, were naturally outraged, declaring the law to be one of the most intolerable acts of the British Parliament. Historian Martin Griffith writes that it caused a good deal of patriotic indignation and was widely considered by people on both sides of the Atlantic to have contributed in no small part to the revolution of 1776. The American colonists lambasted the Quebec Act, denouncing it and the attendant <coughs> French alliance as a dagger aimed at the heart, as a betrayal of their religious heritage and a Trojan horse. The colonists issued and, quote, addresses written to the people of England, unquote, in which they expressed, quote, our astonishment that the British Parliament should ever consent to establish in that country, Canada, a religion that has deluged your island in blood and dispersed in piety, bigotry, persecution, murder, and rebellion through every part of the world, unquote. Indeed, we must question and regard as very suspicious indeed the eagerness shown by a Protestant king, George III, to thus favor the Catholic faith in one of its Protestant colonies with so gracious a grant of American territory to Roman Catholics. Another of the intolerable acts was the earlier Cartering Act of March 24, 1765, under which the king sent large numbers of British troops to Boston and then demanded that colonists must house them. <laughs> that reminds me of the refugee and immigrant situation we have today. <laughs> and private homes if necessary, and feed them too. And if they did not, so they will get shot. The reader will recognize that these acts served no useful purpose to the crown and were clearly inflammatory acts meant to provoke a radical response from the colonists, as they certainly did. It has been said that these intolerable acts were orchestrated by the agency of the Jesuits in England, who had the ear of the king. Do you doubt this? Read again this part of the Jesuit Oath of Induction. Quote, You have been taught to insidiously plant the seeds of jealousy and hatred between states that were at peace and incite them to deeds of blood, involving them in war with each other, and to create revolutions and civil wars in communities, provinces, and countries that were independent and prosperous and enjoying the blessings of peace. Unquote. By their deeds you will know them. In seven, yeah, <laughs> I thought so. Just a co short comment. Yeah, yeah come you on. know, um, all revolutions are started from the top down, except one, Christ's ministry. All the exactly. rest start from the top down. Exactly, Walt. That's what I've always said. You know, that's absolutely yeah. true. That's the only grassroots revolution. And this author, P.D. Stewart, is bringing this out. And the reason I get how I evaluate different uh, authors, see, P.D. Stewart tells you the same story that, uh, that Rooters of Evil 
our John Daniels book, uh, The Grand Design Exposed. These men, and uh, I know John Daniel. John Daniels uh, had a chance to talk to Tupper Saucy before he got sick suddenly and died at age 72. I'm 71, so I mean, and he was very healthy all up, all the way up to his death, and it, was, it just happened. But the thing of it is, with what it is, is when when two different men that don't know each other come to the same conclusion, you see, that they're connecting the dots. They know history. And that's why history is so important and why it's so... It isn't what these men that are writing these books, these book salesmen, what they're writing in their books. It's what they're leaving out. And again, I want to pound it home. I want to pound it home. When you leave out the carols of the American Revolution, you've got another whole revolution. So, you know, so in other words, and, it, and the author points out here at the end, England had the ear of the kings, the agencies of the Jesuits. The Jesuits are relentless. And by 1776, in, you know, from 1688 to 1776, was almost, you know, almost 100 years. And in those years, from the Glorious Revolution on, the Jesuits were making some headway. And the Jesuits are the ones that infiltrated, because of the Jacobite War of the Glorious Revolution, they infiltrated the Masonic, the, the Masons, see, and what, and what they were... What they were, uns- what the Catholics were unsuccessful to do in 1688, they were successful in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence because they wanted one thing. They wanted one thing: freedom of religion, and they got it. That's all they needed. This one little sentence. Freedom of religion was everything it took only to take the Catholics in where they are first excluded from. Absolutely right. Okay, continue. In 1768, no less personage than Samuel Adams himself recognized this fact when he said, quote, I did verily believe, as I do still, that much more is to be dreaded from the growth of popery in America than from the Stamp Act or any other act destructive of civil rights, unquote. Adams even suggested in the same speech that Rome had a hand in the Stamp Act, quote, nay, I could not help fancying that the Stamp Act itself was conceived with a design only to inure the people to the habit of contemplating themselves as the slaves of men, and to transition hence, thence to a subjection to Satan, a reference to Rome, that is. Is mighty easy. Unquote. And President John Adams is reported to have asked the papal admirer Thomas Jefferson, quote, Can free government possibly exist with the Roman Catholic religion? Unquote. And the answer, of course, is no. The answer is 2015. <laughs> September 24th is the answer. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
1775, all of these intolerable and bizarre acts by the British crown conspired to transform this conflict into an important historical event. In response to the outcry against the Quebec situation, the Continental Congress of the American colonies sent troops to liberate Quebec from Catholic control. But Colonel Brigadier General Benedict Arnold failed in his mission at the assault on the salt or matelot barriers uh, in the winter of December 31st, 1775. Curiously, Cantrell appointed a French Catholic priest from Quebec, Father Eustache Lotbinière, as chaplain to the 1st Regiment on January 26, 1776. In any event, General Arnold, or Benedict, having failed in his Quebec mission, the Continental Congress then sent a diplomatic mission to Canada to negotiate terms of peace. Included in that mission were Samuel Chase, Benjamin Franklin, and listen up, the prominent Roman Catholic Charles Carroll. When Franklin and Charles Carroll went to Montreal on behalf of Congress in April 1776, they took with them Carroll's cousin, a Jesuit priest, the aforementioned John Carroll. Whoever seeks to explain the American reversal on the Catholic question must look at what happened in Quebec and the significant role played by the wily Jesuit John Carroll. Going to continue reading part three of this chapter called Using War to the Church's Advantage, directly after Walt gives us a little comment. I think it's, I just want to add, when they got done, Benjamin Franklin was on this, uh, yeah, he was, Benjamin Franklin was with them, and on the way back, Benjamin Franklin took ill. And for six months, uh, John Carroll was his caregiver. And remember, John Carroll, Charles Carroll, and Daniel Carroll are left completely out of our history books. Would it be very assumptuous to say that they maybe poisoned him for any or other reason to make him dependent on the care of Charles Carroll? Well, I don't... <laughs> that's, that's speculation. The Jesuits I, are masters I, of poison, right? Yeah, we know, yeah, we all but, know that. But, but they were all in bed together. The Franklins, <laughs> the Adams, the Jeffersons. Jefferson even had his own Bible. Yeah, he, wrote, he wrote his own Bible. He left out the Gospel. You know, it, it's a, you see, it's, a, it's become a religion in America that the founders were Christian. And I might sound like a broken record, but I, gotta, <laughs> I might sound like a broken record, but the brother I talked to from Missouri today said, Walt, you just keep right on saying what you're saying on Hour of the Truth. York, York and you are, and Tom are right on the money. See? I mean, because we're, what we're doing is we're just bringing out something that's been left out. And the more you talk about it, the bigger you see it. See, how, how, could, how could this author be telling, writing, this, writing this if he had to leave the carols out of it? We are taking the splinters out of our eyes so that for the first time we can really see the deception as what yes, it is. And on the next page, I'm, I'm, I'm excited when you get to this this one page. I mean, we well, I definitely want to change. I want. 
I think whatever time it takes, we, we, we finish this chapter. This is an I'm going to finish, finish this uh, using war to the judge's advantage chapter right now. As soon as you shut up, Walt, I go on. <laughs> okay. Let's go. Okay. America's first Catholic bishop was a strong supporter of the American Revolution. His cousin, Carroll, firmly believed that a Catholic institution could make a major contribution to the political, cultural, and educational life of the fledgling nation. Once the war began, in order to dispel the deep-seated suspicion of the Protestants that the Catholic Church in America was no more than a tool of the Holy See Bishop, Carroll encouraged Catholics to flight into the, uh, in the 1776 War of America's independence from Britain. To fight, huh? I said that, I didn't say flight, huh? to fight, huh? sorry. <laughs> Flying didn't exist at that time. Catholics to fight in the 1776 War for America's independence from Britain. This proved to be the major turning point in the Catholic-Protestant relations. Anti-Catholic sentiment greatly abetted, especially when John J. Pilch of Georgetown University, Americans noticed the wholehearted participation of Catholics in the common struggle and war for independence. And John Carroll wrote to John Fennell on the Gazette, uh, June 10, 1789, quote, Their blood flowed as freely in proportion to their numbers, to cement the fabric of the independence as that of any of their fellow citizens." Unquote. The year 1776, the reader will not doubt recall, was the year in which Jesuit Adam Weishaupt established the Illuminati, whose expressed claim, aim, was then overthrow all of the established government. Just my, my, well, when, we, when we go, yeah, I also have a comment here. When we go into uh, Adam Weishaupt, Adam Weishaupt got the order to found the Illuminati in 1773, and he got that order from no other than General Lorenzo Ricci at that time. The founding of the Illuminati was just to have a new front organization for the Jesuits that were dispelled or that were banned in 1773. And it was all planned by General Lorenzo Ricci. What you can read when I continue in the book Rulers of Evil. But please, Walt. It's real important. Every time you see that Illuminati, it's not the Illuminati. It's the Bavarian Illuminati. Very, very important. That's where Ratzinger came out of. That's where Kissinger comes out of. And you see... the. Protestant Reformation never got to Bavaria. It's real important. And even uh, I remember hearing this from you, York. You said, I never did like anybody. There was something that, that I didn't like when people, Germans that were from Bavaria. Well, they are different. They're Roman Catholic. Yes, they are certainly a different kind of Germans, I can say it that way. And, um, and remember, we don't have to go on to it, but the, the, the Third Reich came out of Bavaria. <laughs> Everything evil in Germany always came from the South. Okay, continue reading. Why, you ask, would a Jesuit or zealous Catholic fight and die in a war on side that he did not really support when his true allegiance was with Rome? Because, as, on Jesuit, uh, as one Jesuit general put it, quote, 
We have men for martyrdom if they be required. Unquote. Fighting and dying in the American Revolutionary War was a small price to pay for Rome's advantage. If this proposition seems preposterous, I cite again the instructions given to the Jesuit at his initiation to a position of command. Quote, you have been taught to take sides with the combatants and to act secretly in concert with your brother Jesuit who might be engaged on the other side, but openly opposed to that which you might be connected. Only that the church might be the gainer in the end. The end justifies the means. Unquote. And this, that the end justifies the means, is as actual or current today as it was in the days of 1540 when Ignatius Loyola first read this false oath of induction to the Pope to get the Jesuit order initiated by the papacy. As a result of the role played by Catholics in the war for independence, and by those who went to Canada with the Quebec delegation, respect for Catholics grew, particularly for Charles Carroll and Father Jesuit John Carroll. So much so that in 1792, when Washington was considering resigning the presidency, James McHenry of Maryland suggested, and Alexander Hamilton agreed, that Charles Carroll would run as a Federalist candidate for President of the United States. Had President Washington retired at that time, the first Catholic president would have been Charles Carroll. <laughs> this is just incredible. So it took them another almost 200 years to install their first Catholic president, but that would have been a joke if at that time already the first or the second American president would have been a Catholic. Right, Walt? Right, but that wasn't to be because Charles Carroll has flown under the radar, and anybody in this call, go, go back eight years in your life, or be honest with you, when you went through high school and the founders and learning the history of America, you didn't learn one thing about the Carols. Because they, it's, it's brilliant how they've done this, how they've just staggered. It's, it's mind yeah. control. It's what it is. It is mind control. Nothing else, yeah. They flew under the radar, as you cite it so often. Yeah. No, they flew under the radar. That's a cat. That comes from a Catholic article. If you do a Google search on the the faith of no, no, the Catholic founding fathers, you will come to a Catholic site. Just do a Google search on the Catholic founding fathers. I got it up on my web page too, and that's where I got it. I got it right off the internet from a Catholic. I think it is also mentioned in this booklet that you put together here, because we read it, I think I quite yeah. seem to remember. It's in a later, uh, on a later page in this book, but anyway, yes. shall I continue? Yeah, continue. Another fact worth of note is that soon after Washington's Continental Congress declared its independence from Britain in 1776, a military alliance was formed with Catholic France against Protestant England. Next, Catholic Spain joined in. Why would France and Spain get involved in such a distant war? Well, to ensure the success of the Catholic cause. If the reader still doubts that Rome had a hand in and benefited from the fomenting of the American Revolution, then consider the following report written by Bishop John Carroll from a committee of Catholic clergy reporting to Rome in 1790. 
Quote, in 1776, American independence was declared and the revolution effected, not only in political affairs, but also in those relating to religion. For while the 13 provinces of North America rejected the yoke of England, before this great event, the Catholic faith had penetrated two provinces only, Maryland and Pennsylvania. In all the others, the laws against Catholics were enforced. But by the Declaration of Independence, every difficulty was removed. Every political disqualification was done away. Unquote. Revolutionary war was a war, quote-unquote, relating to religion. Of course, the Catholic Church gave lip service to universal religious toleration as it served her ends at the time. You remember that the end justifies the means? Catholicism was the religion not tolerated. But the Church's real agenda is found in the letter of February 27, 1785 from John Carroll, to Cardinal Leonardo Antonelli, quote, that the most flourishing portion of the church, with great comfort to the Holy See, may one day be found here, unquote. And I add right now that one day is September 24th, 2015. In this opinion, he was joined by Father Charles Plowden, who gave the sermon at Carroll's consecration on August 15, 1790. Quote, Although this great event may appear to us to have been the work, the sport, and the human passion, yet the earliest and most precious fruit of it has been the extension of the kingdom of Christ, the propagation of the Catholic religion, which hitherto fettered by restraining laws is now enlarged from bondage and is left at liberty to exert the full energy of divine truth. Unquote. Comment. I'm not going to go into a discussion about this divine truth and putting Christ into where he has nothing to do with, but otherwise I would be still reading tomorrow. Please, Walt. Well, listen. This is, this is the second time this paragraph of Charles Plowden is mentioned. It's also... Uh, later on in the book. But let's read this real slow. I'm going to read this real slow and read it in Catholic terminology. This paragraph here tells you exactly what the American Revolution was about. Now let me read it. Although this great event, that's the American Revolution, may appear to us to have been the work, the sport of human passion, Yet the earliest and most precious fruit of it has been the extension of Roman Catholicism, not the kingdom of Christ. You have to realize what they're saying here. They're talking about Roman Catholicism. The propag propagation of the Catholic religion, which hitherto fettered, fettered by restraining laws, is now enlarged from bondage and is at liberty to extend the full energy of the papacy. Now you know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. 
Listen, <clears throat> shall I go on? Yes. That was a good explanation, by the way. Thanks for that. Saved me about two hours of explanation. <laughs> but let there be no mistake. The American War of Independence was a double victory for Catholicism. Firstly, over Britain having used the quote-unquote light cavalry of the Pope, the Jesuits and the Freemasons to encourage the crown to pass those acts, unquote, and secondly, over the psyche of the American people. Thus did the Papists and the Jesuits play their role in the American War of Independence. Comment? Yeah. Over the psychic of the American people. They had to make this look like a protestant effort. And the, and the Masons played that part. And we are experiencing this today. When a Seventh-day Adventist minister calls me, it's dark here at 5 o'clock in the morning, and, he, and he's on the streets of Washington, D.C., and he holds up his cell phone, and he has an evangelist speaking, and the man is speaking unity. He's not speaking. He's, with, he's got a bullhorn or a microphone, and he's speaking about unity, the psychic of America. It's the most temp it's the most sensitive nerve in the Patriots. It was one of the hardest pills to swallow when I realized what they had done to my mind. When I realized I didn't have I called it the dark hole in history, the two hundred years prior to seventeen seventy six. This is powerful how they completely took it out of the minds of the people. The people today, as I go and I associate with people, when I, when I, when I associate with people, they have completely taken it out of the minds of people. This day to the average American is just another day. And they did it over the psychic of American people. That's, look at what they did to 9-11, the psychic, what they did to the heads of the whole world. So anyway, that's, that's a real important a statement that P.D. Stewart makes there. Absolutely. It uh, confirms everything that we don't know about infiltration, about um, sophistry, casistry, and indoctrination. And that worked 200 years ago or 300 years ago, and it still works today. On another level, maybe, but it still works. That the Jesuits and the French Illuminists were the instigators behind the American War of Independence was hinted at by President George Washington himself. In response to a letter from Jesuit Bishop Carroll congratulating the president on his election, Washington wrote back on March 12, 1790, saying, quote, To the Roman Catholics of the United States, your fellow citizens, non-Catholics, will not forget the patriotic part which you took in the accomplishment of their revolution and the establishment of the government or the assistance received from a nation in which the Roman Catholic faith is professed, i.e., from the French Jacobins or Illuminati. And uh, we already learned by my reading of Rulers of Evil and also by 
uh, Waltz saying from last Sunday um, that the Jacobite, that the first Jacobite revolution was the successful, the successful one, the one they did over there in the United States of America after three times failing in England and France. We observe also by the uh, by the by. The following revelations, which are clipped in small print from the Denver Register. On May 11, 1952, that paper ran the following article suggesting that Washington converted to Catholicism before he died. Quote, A picture of the Blessed Virgin Mary and one of St. John, and you all know what St. John stands for, were among the effects bound in and inventory of the articles in Mount Vernon at the death of George Washington. The Reverend W.C. Ripetti from the Society of Jesus, archivist at Georgetown University, reports he has discovered this information in an appendix to a biography of Washington. The book is The Life of George Washington by Edward Everett, published by Sheldon and Company in New York, 1860. Quote, The fact that he had a picture of the Blessed Virgin is rather unexpected and, to the best of my knowledge, has not been brought out, says Father Ripetti. The long report among slaves of Mount Vernon as to Washington's deathbed conversion uh, would be odd unless based on truth. It is part of the tradition that weeping and wailing occurred in the quarters that Massa Washington had been snared by the Scarlet Woman of Rome. Father Neal was rowed across the Piscatoni by Negro oarsmen, and men often talked freely when slaves were nearby, confidently ignoring their presence. Unquote. And from the Denver Register of February 24, 1957, we read, quote, It was a long tradition among both the Maryland province, Jesuit fathers, and the Negro slaves of the Washington plantation that the first president died a Catholic. These and other facts about George Washington are reported in the Paulist Information magazine by Dora Hurley. The story is that uh, Dora Hurley, sorry. The story is that Father Leonard Neal, also from the Society of Jesus, was called to Mount Vernon from St. Mary's Mission across the Piscatawney River four hours before Washington's death. Washington's body servant, Juba, is authority for the fact that the general made the sign of the cross at Neal's. He may have learned this from its Catholic lieutenants, Stephen Moylan or John Fitzgerald at Valley Forge. Washington forbade the burning and effigy of the pontiff on, quote, Several times as president, he is reported to have slipped into a Catholic church to hear Sunday Mass, unquote. So it seems that President Washington lived like a Catholic during his life, and he was converted to Catholicism before his death. Bishop John Carroll said that Washington died as, as did, quote, Emperor Valentinia, unquote, referring to the Roman emperor who, like Constantine, was received into Catholic Church just before his death. Washington was also a member of the Great Council of the Fraternitas Rosae Crucis, though this was known only to the Great Council at the time as he chose to remain an inconnu, which is French and stands for unknown, of the fraternity.
comment? Yeah. I just want to be, you know, I said something at the beginning of the broadcast. I said, you know, George Washington was a Roman Catholic. Wow, man, that, I mean, I, I mean, I'll say that. I don't care if people just want to, but I'm looking at the facts. He, he didn't put in this article. He doesn't, he doesn't know that Washington was a member of the Society of Cincinnati. You know, he was a master mason. Okay. I mean, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, it's a duck. That's all I got to say. Most of the times, that is the way it is. Yeah, absolutely. And go ahead. Okay. After the War of Independence from Britain, the Pope sent thousands more Jesuits to work and insinuate themselves in the affairs of the new republic. Today, the Jesuits are openly working with the great men of the United States, and the leading political figures are bending upon their knees, fawning before the Roman pontiff. Well, that's what we just comment. saw today, right? Comment, comment, <laughs> yeah. comment. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, today, today, the Jesuits are openly working with the great men of the United States. A standing ovation, 11 times. And the leading political figures are bending upon their knees, fawning before the Roman pontiff. This man wrote this before there was even a Jesuit as a pope. What more proof do you need? I mean, if this doesn't grab you, if I mean, history is history. If you don't believe what, what happened in 1776, just look at what happened today. <laughs> <laughs> they laid the cornerstone in 1776 and they finished the pyramid today probably absolutely that, that is right it's a much bigger it's the conquest of america they yeah, they are saying things and i i i mean i haven't read i have a i have a brother that's read it already and uh but in other words i think we'll take a, we could take another broadcast to go over it piece by piece but it's a conquest of America. This is the victory lap. Well, then you, know, then you know why, Walt, I start this reading of the Catholic conquest of America from the signs of the times. It all fits in together. It was a conquest they started in 1776, and they couldn't get England, so they got America. They had, and, they, 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 in other words, they, they had to break that, They had to break those colonies. Can you imagine? I mean, they had yeah. to break those colonies because because in an were, earlier part in an earlier part of the book, I already uh, I already read that about the Puritans. You know that they said that it would only be the advantage of the empire in which the sun never sets. It would only be to their advantage if America was still under the control of England and not of the Roman Catholic Church. Now they control both. Now they control both. They control they, it all today. They control it all. They control <laughs> it all. Yeah. You know, and yeah. Okay. yeah. Let, me just, let me just finish the last few sentences and we can come to a conclusion of the broadcast today. It was another great Jesuit enterprise, a most colossal conspiracy against the United States and one of their finest fields of victory yet almost on the scale of that achieved by Loyola in the 16th century Europe.
Wiley Wells said, quote, if despotisms will not serve them, unquote, they will demoralize society and render government impossible through revolution and from chaos to remodel the world anew. What do we read? Order out of chaos? New world order? Isn't that right on your dollar bill? That's history, people. That's real history that you do not see, even though they put it blatantly before your eyes. Mm -hmm. Do not doubt this, for the Jesuits openly say that, quote, fascism is the regime that corresponds most closely to the concepts of the Church of Rome. And this is taken from the Civilta Cattolica, the official Jesuit um, publication. The Jesuits, you must understand, hate all free, non-Catholic states, and so they seek to, quote, cure the evils of democracy by the evils of fascism, like curing syphilis by giving the patient malaria, unquote. <laughs> I want to say it one more time. Well, malaria, but today they use Ebola, right? Right. Cure the evils of democracy by the evils of fascism like curing syphilis by giving the patient malaria. And I put in the, the bottom, a Jesuit enclave question. Has not P.D. Stewart painted a clear picture? Yes, so. For everybody with, ear, with eyes to see and ears to hear, he surely has. And, and this is a little bit why we are doing this, to open the ears and the eyes of the listeners to this broadcast and the videos we make of it. And Absolutely. comfort, and comfort the, the ones that are on this call have their eyes open. They need to be comforted. We have really been duped as Americans. All the way. All the way. In other words, you, got to, you have to... to, you have to when you make, to correct a mistake, you have to admit you've made one first. Yeah, that's J JFK, right? Well, that's, that's an, an old error, thing. An error only becomes a mistake if you refuse to correct it. Yes, I mean... JFK. And it's a hard pill to swallow. It's a hard pill to swallow. And I know people have, you know, but Roman Catholicism, you know, it are the hidden... What was the hidden faith of the founding fathers in its Roman? Romanism, Walt. Romanism. Roman Catholicism. We shouted from the rooftops. And isn't it isn't it Roman. interesting that we tried to we tried to read this for about the last three weeks and we never got through we never got through the book until yeah, we the day the, right the Pope day. came. We we didn't we, and we didn't plan this. No, <laughs> we didn't plan this. But I can't think of a a better chapter than P.D. Stewart's book. And by the way, it's one of the best books, you know. Uh, Very appropriate to read it, today. It, code, code word uh, Barbalon, I mean, it needs a lot of editing. The author has a lot with, in common with me. He, he types 30 words a minute and makes 30 mistakes a minute. And, and <laughs> there's a lot of, I, I even noticed that you corrected the English on one of the sentences, you know. Yeah, I know. But, I know. but besides that, I mean, this book, this book, you don't have to read mountains of book. 
you read this book, Romanism and the Reformation, and then the papacy is the Antichrist, a demonstration by J.A. Wiley. And that's all you need to read. And you know something? I want to finish. I want to finish this. I, I, I want to finish this with. Uh, this is a book. You can get it for free by sending me your, your name and address, and I'll send you this book. But I, you know. What we all lack sometimes when we, com- when we try to communicate with each other is clarity. And Walt, he's pretty guilty of that. And I try to slow down and, and not, you know, and uh, just a second here. Just a second. Just a second. Yeah. You're going to have to take it. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the broadcast down to the end now. And I'm going to finish with um, what Walt just mentioned. The book from um, J.A. Wiley, um, uh, the Papacy is the Antichrist, a demonstration, is now being read on a YouTube channel from Jesse Vessel, uh, also a brother who sometimes joins us here in the broadcast on Hour of the Truth. So I will just ask you to keep an open eye on that channel because he started reading that book, um, The Papacy is the Antichrist, a demonstration by J.A. Wiley. And with this, I want to no. thank everybody for their but attention to the broadcast today. Yeah. I, I still want to finish the broadcast with this because this is so important on a day like today because this just adds to what you just said. And Jesse is, is, is starting to read this book. This book is not a very big book, but J.A. Waddy writes it like a lawyer. And it's not the quantity of pages that count, Walt. It's the quality of it, the it's pages. It's the quality, and he lays it out and gives you the facts. Yeah, he does a really good job on that. Yes. I watched the first part. So, okay, I'm going to bring this down, and uh, thank you, no, everybody. No, no, I want to finish it. No, no, not, let me finish. <laughs> Kate, finish. Please. This is, this is very, very important. This is what J.A. Wiley says, and it's the clarity that, you gotta, that I want to bring to the front here. He says, quote, J.A. Wiley, we do not hesitate to say that we have nearly as full and convincing evidence that the Roman papacy is the Antichrist as we have that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. In his last sentence, talking about this first one, he says, In conclusion, let us note that Christianity stands alone in having its Antichrist our counterfeit, Mohammedism has no such counterfeit. Buddhism has no such counterfeit. There is not power of truth enough in these systems to call into existence a great opposing counterfeit system. Without the sun, he's talking about the sun, S-U-N, there can be no shadows. The sun, S-U-N, the son of Christianity has been accompanied all down the ages by this shadow. So far, Antichrist does not does homage to the divinity of the gospel. Unless Christ had gone before, Antichrist could not have come after. Absolutely. And, and, and this is this is uh, 
and and so this is this is uh, another another word. This is Second Thessalonians uh, chapter two. And, and and I didn't know how to say this until I read this, and I wrote an email to somebody, and I said it like this. You know, you've heard me say that they took over America and took us down through the pulpit. You see, now what I just read you, there's no, there's no shadow in the pulpit because they're not teaching Christ. To have a shadow, you've got to teach Christ. And that's, that's from J.A. Wiley. And it's I, 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 it's a great it's a great read. If anything, if anybody's got any doubts, you can get this book right up on my webpage, GrandDesignExposed.com. And so, thanks thanks for coming, and I appreciate the uh, the, the fellowship and the ability to the, the ability and the people. I really appreciate your listening because this we all need we all need some fellowship. When you come to these truths, you need fellowship because we're standing a lot of people wherever you're at or some people that just don't, we're not surrounded by like-minded people. So with that, I'll give it back to you, Georg. Thank you, Walt. And I think it is quite a very appropriate ending by reading this uh, quote from J.A. Wiley. And that's why I want to go for the last time, remind you guys to go to the YouTube channel of Jesse Vessel, who started reading The Papacy is the Antichrist, a demonstration by J.A. Wiley. He just uploaded the first part, I think, yesterday, and is going to continue one of the next days with the reading. Also, I want to remind you to follow Tom Fress on the reading of the Global Vatican, where you can get a lot of information out, because a Protestant is reading that book that was written by a Knight of Malta to Catholics. And uh, a little advertisement for myself. I will continue, of course, the two readings of Rulers of Evil and Babylon Mystery Religion also, and these will also more give you more information on the subject we talked about today. So by this, I'm going to end the broadcast today on the 24th of September, the day that the Antichrist, for the first time in history, spoke to a joint session of Congress to the United States of America, and we will probably go into that much more in detail next week in our broadcast. And until then, thank you for listening. Thank you for coming by here. God bless you, and bye-bye.